Well, good morning, everyone. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. But before I get to that, um, all right, I'm going to wing, oh, there we go, booming voice. I'm going to wing something here. Our scripture reading today is like 700 verses, so I'm not going to read all of it, but I want to go on record here. All right, so I'm going to read like the first part and then the last part, but Acts chapter 7 is kind of the whole, the whole chapter is kind of the meat of what the, the message is about. So you're going to have to read that on your own, not during the sermon, <laughs> at a later time. And so, oh, we switch it around here. So if you are committing to reading all of Acts chapter 7 on your own this week, would you please raise your hand and keep your hand raised, all right? And I am getting it on video <laughs> as proof. Just give me a couple of seconds here. All right. There's, oh good, my son raised his hand. He knows, he knows where his food comes from. All right. Then we're getting everybody, we won't be posted on the internet, so you don't need to worry about witness uh, protection. Oh yeah, I got to get these guys. (laughs) Noah. Peer pressure, peer pressure, Kevin. All right. Okay, Kevin raised both hands. He's going to read it twice. (laughs) Video proof. All right. Isn't Isn't it fun to have fun at church? All right. We're starting with the last part of Acts chapter 6. Then I'm going to skip most of 7 and kind of wrap up there at the end. Starting at verse 8 of chapter 6. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Stephen then speaks. This is the reaction to his defense testimony. Verse 54 of chapter 7. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. 
But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God. And Jesus, standing at the right hand of God, look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, they covered their ears. And yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him with rocks. Not with herbs, by the way, just for modern context. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Father God, may you honor the reading of your word this day with the work of your spirit to bring not only hearing but understanding. Lord, understanding who you truly are. Who you truly are is a matter of life and death, not just belief, not just religion, not just a self-improvement or a life enhancement program, Lord, but you truly are Lord of all, the giver of life. And Lord, as we look at the all-too-short life and ministry of your servant Stephen, May your spirit be at work among us to bring our faith to his level. Lord God, I ask for those who are, who are here gathered in this place in these moments that your spirit will work and take your words apart from my words and teach your truth. Convict hearts, inform minds, strengthen resolve. Lord, help us clear out the clutter. Help us cut through all of the all of the voices of this world and all of this, the, the lunacy that's happening in our society right now, may we see you clearly at the right hand of God, reigning, ruling over not only us, but this whole world. Lord, for those who are watching now and who will watch at a later time, I pray for the work of your spirit to be the same. You have already ordained those moments. You have ordained that instance. Lord, and I pray that in those moments they will have an encounter with you that will change their minds, their hearts, and the way they live. As always, Lord, I ask for my words not to get in the way of your word, but for you to speak, to work, to bring glory to yourself as Jesus is lifted up. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, your Son, O Father God, that we do pray and ask these things. Amen. Would you please be seated? First off, I want to give a welcome to those who are our guests this morning. We're so glad that you are here with us and that the, the Lord led you here for whatever his purposes may be. We'd love to get a chance to know you. If you want to fill out a connection card, we'd greatly appreciate it. There's a paper one on the back of the row in front of you. There's an online version. If you just click on the QR code, you can find that. We'd love to have a chance to meet you, to minister to you, and help you in your spiritual journey. I also want to give a very special welcome to those who are joining with us online today. We're so glad that you are a part of the Oak Park family 
today as well. Remember, you can participate in today's service in real time as long as you're watching live by texting in comments, questions, prayer praises, or prayer requests to 805-481-7092. That number will be on the bottom of the screen throughout the service today. We'd love to hear from you. And if you are a first-time texter, Please include your name so we knew who to pray for and who to hunt down on the internet. That would be really appreciated. <laughs> we just want to get a chance to know you and pray for you. And then lastly, I want to say, hey, we had the debut of a new ministry uh, for Oak Park yesterday. It was the debut of OPCC Outdoors, and we had 18 people show up for our first hike, and I think we have a picture of that. Yeah. Uh, we were out at Oso uh, Flaco Lake uh, yesterday, had a great time of not only getting some exercise out in God, the beauty of God's creation, uh, but had a great time uh, talking and just fellowshipping and hanging out as well. So it was a good day. More events will be coming up. If you're interested in that, uh, just indicate so on a, on a connection card, um, or you can also do, do all of that online as well. We'll have a number of events and activities coming up over the next uh, few weeks and months. All right, let's get into our message this morning. The early church, the, first, the very first Christians, Jesus had lived, he had ministered, he had had huge crowds, he died, he was, he was executed, he was put into a tomb, and then he got out of the tomb. Changed all of human history. It is still reverberating to this day, even 2,000 years later. Jesus' life, death, and return to life is the epicenter of human history. It is that around which everything is oriented. It does change everything. But early on, there were some dark days. The, the very first church, the first Christians, there was only about 120 out of all the crowds that had followed Jesus, out of all those who had, who had become disciples and had followed him and listened to him and been healed by him, the first church started off with about 120 people, probably roughly about the same number we have in here. This was it. 120 people of Jesus against the world. This is where God began his work of infiltrating his kingdom into the kingdoms of this world from 120 to upwards of close to three billion, two something, two point something billion today. The book of Acts records the initial expansion and growth of the church. 120 till the day of Pentecost and then there was over 3,000 a short time, just a few weeks later, the number of believers in Jesus, just men, was over 5,000. After that, Luke records that just, just droves of men and women and even Jewish priests became convinced that Jesus rose from the dead. And then they reoriented all of their daily life, their daily perspective around that truth. Nobody knows for certain, but the estimates of that first year to two of the church estimates that, that, that probably somewhere around 20,000 people in the city of Jerusalem were believers in Jesus. That first church, in spite of those numbers, was marked by unity and harmony, incredible generosity. Luke says that people were, were, were selling homes and selling property they were giving graciously and generously of their, of their money and their material possessions so that everybody could be taken care of. Luke says that there were no needy persons among them. 
One of the ministries they started was a daily distribution of food to widows. Is that a great ministry? We even do that today, right? What's it called? Meals on Wheels. And then there's a whole host of other um, things to make sure people have food. But this was new. It was novel. It was paradigm-shifting. Right after this, the Jewish leaders began to emulate it, and they began their own program of taking better care of their widows. But it started with the church. But you can imagine, upwards of five to 10 to 15 to 20,000 people, that is a logistical nightmare. Remember, those were the days, no electricity, no lights, no internet, no cell phones. How in the world did they ever survive? There were no databases, no mass marketing. But somehow, they not only survived, they thrived, but they did have problems. You see, that's a lot of people to keep track of and to take care of. And when you're growing so fast, it's very easy for some people to get overlooked. And that's one of the first crises the early church faced was some people were getting overlooked. You see, there was the Jew Jews who had become Christians. But then there was a kind of a second cultural group of Jews who also became Christians. But they were Jews who didn't speak Aramaic, didn't speak Hebrew, didn't follow all of the laws as extensively as the Jewish Jews did. They were much more Greek in their approach to life, their lifestyle, their clothing, some of the things that they, that they did and how they occupied their time. They were very enculturated among Greek society. And soon some of those widows began to get overlooked, probably not intentionally, probably as a result of well, some cultural differences and some language barriers and some, some things like that, but they were neglected. So people began to complain to the apostles, the 12 men, the disciples of Jesus, who were the leaders of this new, this new entity, the church of Jesus Christ. And as they dealt with this problem, they came up with a solution. You see, there was a little bit of a cultural divide between the apostles and these Hellenistic Jews, the Grecian Jews. So they had some obstacles to overcome. The apostles decide to prioritize and to delegate this ministry to others. They call for the selection of seven men. Seven men to, quote-unquote in the Scriptures, to wait tables, to distribute food. But the prerequisite required for these seven men shows that what the apostles had in mind was far greater and far more extensive than just handing out food. The first of these seven men was named Stephen. And as with the names of all of them, they were Hellenistic Jews. They weren't the Jewish Jews. They were the Hellenistic Jews. They spoke the language. They lived the culture. They blended in. That was the way they thought. This was their people being neglected. Now, the task set before the seven was simply to deliver food, to make sure nobody got overlooked, everybody was included, so that there would be no needy persons among them. But the requirements hint at something far greater. You see, the, the, the only real requirement set forth for these seven men was that it needed to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. 
Nowadays, when, when, when we're looking for you know, somebody to do something, it's like, okay, if we're going to be delivering something or, or distributing food, do they have a truck? Do they have a license? Can they lift? Or they, they have back issues like some of us may have. But back then, the, the, the priority for, yes, serving even in the food distribution of food was they had to be full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. Stephen is listed first. He is the first chosen for this task. And the descriptions of Stephen are superlative. He is not only full of the Spirit and wisdom, he is full of faith and the Holy Spirit. He is full of God's grace and power. And speaking of power, Stephen becomes the first non-apostle in the book of Acts that is said to be able to work miracles. He's able to heal. He's able to do those signs and wonders that were pretty much exclusively the privilege of the apostles at the beginning. He was a man full of the Spirit and wisdom and grace and power. Up to this point, the author of the book of Acts, Luke, points out that the apostles are the successors to Jesus' ministry. They carry out the ministry of Jesus. They prolong it in their, in their, their healing and in their, in their teaching. Stephen represents the first of the, the empowerment, the equipping, the passing of the baton onto others outside of the apostles who will carry on the carrying on of the mission of Jesus. The first two listed are Stephen and Philip. The other five pretty much disappear from the story. Stephen, this is his time in the sun, chapter 7. Chapter 8 deals with Philip and, and what he did to expand the gospel. These were amazing men. They were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. You see, as the church grew, more disciples requires more leaders. That's just a natural need. And the apostles began the process of equipping and training up and empowering and then releasing these men to ministry. And Stephen does not disappoint. The dude had it going on. On the Enneagram, he must have been like an eight or a one. He was an extrovert. He was determined. He was articulate. He was assured. He was confident. He was forceful. He didn't back down from a fight. See, not only did he wait tables, not, not only did he make sure that the widows were taken care of and that they had their food, he told people about Jesus. And not just the ones who were already in the church. He told the, 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 the other Grecian Jews, the Hellenistic Jews in the synagogues, you may remember the story, Joseph was the youngest of, of the 12, and his brothers hated him because he was uh, grandfather's or father's favorite, and they sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. His story is absolutely amazing. It's in Genesis. But God sent him in those circumstances to Egypt years before there would be a great famine in Israel. 
And Joseph in Egypt had bided his time. He had stayed faithful to his God. He had risen the ranks and he'd actually attained the place of, or the place of grand vizier in Egypt, an exceptionally powerful position. And through his wisdom and through his abilities, Egypt had been able to store up food and they had stayed strong in these years. When Israel was plagued by famine, the Israelites, thousands of them would come to Egypt looking for food. And in one of the most striking scenes in all of the Bible, here is Joseph, the brother who was sold into slavery, standing over and above his older brother's granting them grace and forgiveness for what they had done. He says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. It's an amazing story. But God's providence, once again, not in the land, but in another land, somewhere else. And then, of course, he transitions then to the most important part of Israel's history, their release from slavery in Egypt. But even then, the people resisted the one that God had sent to rescue them. They resisted Moses as the deliverer, as the redeemer, as the freer of the people. They do follow. Then they go into the desert, and there's the wilderness wanderings and all of this hullabaloo that happens with that. And then there's the giving of the law. We know that as the Ten Commandments, but it was a little bit more extensive than that. And what did the Israelites do? They complained. They resisted. They rejected. They actually ended up worshiping false gods. They, they, they fashioned a, a calf out of gold and worshiped the calf. The fickleness of the human heart. But Stephen recounts this. And then he concludes with, with, a, with a very poignant point. God does not dwell in just one place. The work of God is not limited to the law or this temple. And so when Jesus was saying, I will, I will destroy this temple and raise it up in three days, it was not the literal physical temple. It was the temple of his body, which is where God dwelled and where God worked. Stephen concludes a portion of his message like this. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You see, God is transcendent. And the first century Jews were so oriented around the temple and the adherence to the law that that's all they focused on. Stephen says there is something far greater. And when Jesus said he was coming to, to fulfill this law, they interpreted it as an attack. They interpreted it as blasphemy. So these are his two main points. God works outside the land. It's not limited to Jerusalem, not limited to the temple. And his work is not limited there, nor is his presence. And he also points out that everybody God has sent faced opposition and hostility and rejection. Joseph 
was rejected by his family. Moses was rejected by his fellow Israelites as he tried to lead them. In the subsequent centuries, God would send prophet after prophet to the Israelite people. They would be ridiculed and rejected outright. Only a remnant would listen. A small number out of the millions would listen. And then, of course, Jesus, just like all the other prophets, was rejected as well. But it really is his closing comments that sealed his fate. And here's where you get to see the kind of guy that Stephen was. Not backing down from a fight, not a politician, not a worker of consensus or unity. This is what he says. You stiff-necked people. That is not how you influence people and win friends. You stiff-necked people, your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. Do I listen to the Holy Spirit or do I... But the joke is really good. (laughs) Calling a Jewish person uncircumcised is a really, really severe cut down. (laughs) Brian, you're right. Next time I'm listening to the Holy Spirit. My apologies on that. But that is a very cutting remark. Yeah, I know. I just can't stop. Yeah, terrible. Uh-oh, losing, losing the crowd. But you understand how, how this would just infuriate the Jewish leaders. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels but have not obeyed it. That is a closing argument that will get you convicted. And despite this impassioned and eloquent presentation of Jesus as the righteous one, whom God sent and was likewise rejected, the Sanhedrin declared his words blasphemous and sentenced him to death. And that death sentence was immediate. As Stephen began this, you may remember from the reading that as he, before he spoke, the members of the Sanhedrin looked upon him and as, as they, they, they recorded or they said that his face was like that of an angel, serene, peaceful, completely trusting the Lord Jesus in that moment, and he most likely knew full well what was coming because he knew through the leading of the Spirit where his words were going to take him. Amazing peace to begin. Holy Spirit-empowered peace to stand in the face of great hostility and animosity. And then the text ends 
with a Holy Spirit-enabled glimpse into heaven of Jesus standing in solidarity with him. Every other reference to Jesus post-resurrection is a reference to Jesus sitting at the right hand of God. That's a position of power and authority. It's a, it's a position of, of reigning and ruling. This is the only instance, the, the, the only place where Jesus is said to be standing. What's the significance of that? When a person is in a courtroom and they are receiving the judgment, what do they have to do? They have to stand. Who stands with them? Their advocate. Their defender. Jesus stands with Stephen because he is our advocate. He is our mediator. He is the one. As the apostles imitate the ministry of Jesus, Stephen gets to imitate the death of Jesus. He's arrested on the same charge as Jesus. In fact, he is arrested for saying what Jesus said about the temple and about the law. Near his death, possibly his second or, or third to last breath, he quoted Jesus, receive my spirit, but he directs it at Jesus. And then with his final breath, he prays the same prayer Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them. Stephen says, do not hold this sin against them. He's just like Jesus. And he becomes the very first person executed for allegiance to Jesus. The numbers of those executed since then are too great to count, only known to God and eternity. But the numbers now are in the tens, if not hundreds of millions over the centuries. 2,000 years after Jesus, more people on this planet align their lives, their hearts, minds, and lives with Christ than ever before. The church continues to grow exponentially. But also in our day and our age, more Christians are being put to death for their faith than any time in recent centuries. The light is becoming brighter. The dark is becoming darker. The line of demarcation is becoming more clear. There is light. There is life. And there is love. And then there is darkness and death and destruction. That is the path. Wrapping up, what does all this mean for us? Remember, you're going to read chapter 7 this week. Just some practical application points. Jesus promises us his peace in the face of great adversity. The very same peace that Stephen had is available to you as a believer in Jesus, as a follower of Jesus, no matter what you may be facing. Right before his execution, Jesus says, my peace I give unto you. Jesus faced the cross with peace. Stephen faced his execution with peace. You can face opposition with peace. The Holy Spirit will give you if you look to Jesus and turn to him. Number two, respond to false accusations with truth 
and grace. We don't have to be defensive, irritable. We don't have to stand up for ourselves. We only have to stand up for Jesus. And if we are misunderstood, if we are maligned, if we are attacked, if we are ridiculed, if our reputation is destroyed, so what? As long as Jesus is glorified. But respond to false accusations with truth and grace. Remember this. Our story, our individual story of salvation is a part of God's grand story. You'll read about that in Acts chapter 7. It's not just about, it's just not just about me and Jesus and Jesus saving me and me getting a get out of hell free card. It's about God's work from before the world was created and how he moved and worked and orchestrated and ordained and worked all the angles to bring Jesus into the world for our salvation. Our story is built upon an incredible legacy of evangelism and faithfulness. And we are just one small part in God's grand story that still may go on for generations if the Lord tarries. One last little point is, despite what it looks like, God may not be done with someone. That's a little hint for a couple weeks from now. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But what I want to end on with this, it's the most important question I can ask you. What does your faith in Jesus mean to you? Is Jesus worth suffering for? Is Jesus worth dying for? Even if Jesus does not call you to die for him, it is very unlikely that any of us will be, will be called into martyrdom for Jesus. But Jesus does call every disciple not to die for him, but to die to self for him. As we die to self, we become less and Jesus becomes more. As John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. That's the life of a disciple. Jesus getting larger, getting bigger, getting more important, assuming more of that role of lordship over our lives so that, yes, Jesus is worth suffering for and Jesus is worth dying for. If your faith isn't there yet, that's okay. But start where you are. Don't stagnate. Don't wallow. Don't get comfortable. Pursue Jesus. Grow closer. Explore. Trust. Reach out. Risk for Jesus. Then you too may have a life and a legacy like Stephen. I'd like to have uh, the team come back up on the stage as we prepare for communion. Communion is where we worship together in a very tangible act. We take bread and we take juice. It represents the body of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. And if you'd please stand with me. After the song, simply come forward and pick up one of the communion elements and then return to your seat. Communion is open to all who are followers of Jesus. And in this act, we thank Jesus for what he did for us and we affirm our faith and our trust in his sacrifice. 
knowing that there's nothing we could do to earn God's love or attain salvation. It is a gift graciously and freely given, and we are grateful.